Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Miracle on 34th Street from 1947 with my wonderful guest, Ashley Blanchett. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today on the show, I have my wonderful friend, Ashley Blanchett. Hello, Ashley. How are you? Hey, what's going on? So happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. Everybody at home, we just had like an epic catch up. So this is like a conversation coming after like the best catch up ever. So this is going to be really fun. Um, Today we are talking about the film Miracle on 34th Street from 1947, not 1994, 1947. Um... Ashley, how did this screening feel for you this time around? It was wonderful. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I saw this movie a lot as a kid and it holds up. Like you were saying, it's even better. I would say as an adult, because when you're a kid, you don't get, of course, it's like so many other classic movies. You don't really understand it until you have a little more experience under your belt. And I think that's what this movie is. This movie is for adults. And like kids can enjoy it. I chose this film this time around because actually Ashley chose this film this time around. (laughs) Twist. I gave her three options of films because I just didn't want to choose. I'm like, I'm not in the mood. I'm a Libra and today I'm not feeling it. So I sent Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life and Remember the Night. And I thought so hard that you were going to pick the Jimmy Stewart one, It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm I'm really relieved that you didn't. I'm really glad that we watched this. Um, I enjoy this one more. And it's one of my mom's what? favorite. I know, I know. It's a whole, I, I that movie's good. It just stresses me out. And this one just is charming and makes me happy. Like, true, so, true. you know, um, but my mom loves this movie. And so my mom is thrilled that we're doing this movie. So happy holidays, Karen. Here you go. It's, it's a movie just for you. Yay, Karen. Happy holidays. It's this and a Christmas story. So I can't say it's like her total favorite of the Christmas yeah. movies. Um, yeah. But those are her top two. Anyway, so that was why we chose it this time around. It's holidays. We wanted to watch a great holiday film. Here we go. Um, also, again, I mentioned this is not the 1994 remake which I'm embarrassed to say that's the one I grew up with. No! Yes. Um, My grandma took me to see it in theaters because I think my grandma thought it was the old one. And yes, I used to have these special dates with my grandma. So she didn't live in our town. She lived in Florida. So she'd fly to Michigan and I'd get to miss school and we'd have a grandma granddaughter date and we'd go to the movies and we'd take a taxi. 
That's yeah. sweet. It's very I sweet. love that. So I saw this with my Aww. grandma, the 1994 one, and I loved that one. And then we had it on VHS. So I watched that one about a billion times. And then I finally saw the 1947 one. And at first I was like, I don't know, I'm a teenager and I'm used to this other version. But now that I'm an adult, I can absolutely say, obviously, it is a much better film. Sorry, 1994 version. You're very sweet, but you're not as good of a movie. You're just not. So this is the definitive, obviously, the original 1947. Um, Now, everyone, I'm going to give you a plot synopsis of this film um, so we can all be on the same page. There will be spoilers. So if you don't like spoilers, go watch the movie first and come back. Um, So basically, this film is about Chris Kringle, this guy, Chris Kringle. Um, He is an older gentleman who looks just like Santa Claus. And that's because he believes he is Santa Claus. Um, And so he gets a job at Macy's being their store Santa Claus. He drastically changes the way they do business because he has a totally different mindset from everybody. He's very into goodwill and kindness and joy and and treating people really well and really fairly. Um, And he's very against commercialization and the commercialization of Christmas. And um, so, yeah, all these stores start having really awesome goodwill campaigns to outdo each other in kindness. So he, he does that on the commercial aspect. And I should mention, Chris Kringle is played by Edmund Gwynn who did win an Oscar for this performance. He won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for playing Santa, Chris Kringle. So we have that story, but then we also have the story of Susan Walker as played by a little wonderful Natalie Wood, who is just a little girl. I think she was eight years old when they filmed this. Um, you know, little tiny, beautiful baby nugget. Um, she's lovely. And uh, her mom, Doris Walker, in the new version, it's Dory Walker. So I might mess that up. Sometimes I might accidentally call her Dory, but it's Doris in this film. Um, Dory Walker, Doris Walker, damn it, is played by Maureen O'Hara, who looks stunning in this film. She's so beautiful in this movie. So she she plays her mother. And then there's this other guy, Fred Gailey, uh, who is played by John Payne. So their whole story is that uh, Maureen O'Hara has been burned in the past. She is a divorced woman. The dad and her were divorced before Susan was even born. So she has raised Susan on her own and she is all about the facts and she's kind of cynical and she doesn't want her kid to believe in fairy tales or Santa Claus or any of this nonsense in her mind because she doesn't want her to grow up to be disappointed uh, like she was. And so she's she she meets this guy that's her neighbor, uh, Fred Gailey as played by John Payne. And he's the opposite. He loves to believe in things. And uh, he's trying to get her to fall in love with him. He's also trying to get them to believe in Kris Kringle and that Kris Kringle really is Santa. And uh, towards the end, it becomes everybody's business whether Kris Kringle is Santa because uh, the quack psychiatrist that works at the department store. Yes, you heard that right. Psychiatrists used to work at department stores and apparently didn't have to have credentials. You could just be like hired and not really be a psychiatrist. Anyway, it's so Sawyer, he's the bad guy here. Uh, he has said that Chris is crazy and has latent maniacal tendencies. And he's <laughs> likely to lash out if people say to him that he's not Santa Claus, which is all a lie um, because Chris knows that this man is bad at his job and he's going to tell Mr. Macy... So they all work at Macy's, by the way. And uh, Macy's and Gimbel's are both real stores. And so we're at Macy's here. Uh, and uh, and Mr. Macy is not played by the real Mr. Macy, just so everybody at home knows that. Anyway, so uh, Sawyer comes up with this whole thing to get Chris Kringle put into Bellevue, which is a mental hospital where he would not really be allowed to be Santa anymore. Um, and it goes to the courts. It goes to the New York City court system to decide whether Chris Kringle should be committed 
or if he should be allowed to continue his life out in the world in New York City as Santa Claus. Um, And guess what, everybody at home? It works out okay. And it works out because of Susie Walker. Susan Walker, Natalie Wood. She has asked Santa for a big present. She wants a house, which is quite frankly a lot, but she asks for it, okay? Uh, She decides that that's how she's going to believe in Santa. But even before she gets this house, she's like, you know what, mom? I'm real sad that Chris Kringle's sad and I believe in him and I'm going to write him a letter. And she addresses her letter to Chris Kringle at the courthouse. This gives mail carriers the idea of like, oh, Chris Kringle's at the courthouse. Let's deliver our government mail to him, thereby making him an official like public figure who you cannot deny. They have a whole term for it, but I can't remember it right now. Uh, but by delivering the mail to Santa Claus, they end up saving him. Susie kind of spearheaded that. She saved the day unintentionally just by writing him a letter telling him she believed in him. And uh, in the end, Chris is deemed sane and he is Santa Claus. Uh, Fred and Doris end up together and Susan gets her house. Yes, she does. And everybody's happy. And it's a Merry Christmas for all. That's the movie. That is Miracle on 34th Street. Can I add something that I think? Please, please. Please tell me if I'm wrong. But I think what happens is because Santa is in the papers that he is at this courthouse and this is this big like famous thing all the letters that all the children of new york are are all the children in the world that usually send their letters to like the north pole they're they're like let's send all the letters addressed to santa to this guy in the courthouse yes this is correct. So the postal system, in their brilliance, they're inspired by Susie's note that says he's at the courthouse. They put two and two together. They're like, oh, wait, Santa's on trial. Santa's in the courthouse. Let's take all these letters in the dead letter section, which is like letters we don't know who to deliver to people. Like, we don't know who to deliver this letter to. Uh, let's take all the Santa letters from all over the world that are usually addressed to the North Pole to him and deliver them. And that thereby confirms his identity because a governing branch of the government recognizes this man as Santa Claus. Ashley is 100% correct. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, that that's, I don't know why that's important. <laughs> that's <the laughs> no, it is. It, it is. <laughs> I didn't realize how weird this movie would be to explain until I was explaining it. And then I was like, it's very complex. It's intricate. <laughs> yeah, it's intricate. It's a very well-written plot. So well written. And so something that like struck me, especially during this viewing is how charming this movie is. Like it is a charming film that really walks this line of like, there are moments when it's cynical and there's moments when it's sweet, but also it like kind of shouts out the cynic, like what people at home, if you were being cynical of the movie at home, it like calls you out a little bit and kind of has this awareness to it. So it's not like too syrupy, not too sweet. It's just right. I I love that. Like when they call out uh, Mr. Macy or is it Macy's or Gimbel's? I can't remember now where he's like, we'll do this goodwill campaign. We'll send everybody everywhere else. It'll make us a fortune. Like the idea of, you know, there's still cynicism there, but it's, I like that they called it out, but then they're still doing the right thing, you know? Okay. Now that you bring that up, I think that one of the really cool things about this movie is that okay, in this time period, they were doing all these Christmas movies and they were explaining like, okay, what what does Christmas inspire in the people in the 1940s? Mm-hmm. And I feel like a big part of it is like, you know, love, family, um, and not capitalism. 
which is interesting, you know, in this time period to kind of make a story that that in for a big part of this story, it's about how bad capitalism can be. Right. And I think in the beginning, you know, the whole idea of like, hey, push this. There's it, It's a big part of the plot that they're like, hey, push all the toys that like, you know, we can't actually sell and like try to get people to buy those toys. Right. Like because we got to we got to make money. We got to make a buck, make a buck. And then this guy who represents like the Christmas spirit and love is the one that says like, oh, well, love is much more important than capitalism. It's much more important than greed. And they see that as a way of being, being successful. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think what's so, what's so funny is that that does happen a lot in capitalism where if you are just trying to do something where you're helping your customer, where you're genuinely like, you know, when you're actually coming from a good place, you can actually make money. It doesn't have to be through greed. And so I think it's kind of, it's kind of cool that they, that they tie that into like, you know, the idea of Christmas because a cynical person could be like, Christmas is really just about keeping capitalism going. It's just about, you know, all these commercials and all this stuff. And this whole holiday is really just based on stimulating the economy. Right. And to some, to a certain extent it is. And I love that they put that in this movie that like capitalism is a part of the Christmas discussion. Right. But like what trumps capitalism is this feeling of goodwill and one way to actually be successful in this world is to come from a place of goodwill and not from a place of greed. And so in that very beginning section of the movie, we've already been taught this lesson that like, yes, capitalism and Christmas are very much intertwined, but the American value that we all can relate to is not the capitalistic greedy part of it. It's the part where if you are helping people, you can be even more successful than you thought. And all these, you know, how, how comedic also that all of these different companies are now competing to be the kindest, you know, yes. um, but you know, I, I, anyway, I just, I just, I think that's such a funny twist and such a funny way of addressing, um, this, this value that we have in our system and this constant battle that we have in American culture of fighting, you know, greed versus, you know, trying to be good people. Yes. Correct. And I feel like in this, they call it commercialism because they couldn't have said capitalism back then. It would have been like, you know, a trigger like, Ooh, so yes, yeah, correct. All of that. But you just opened my mind even further because they address that with like the businesses, but then they also address that with the court in terms of that judge was closed-minded at the beginning, right? He was just going to sign the papers, want everything easy, but then like, oh no, my, my reputation's on the line. I, my, my future judgeship is on the line. I can't be the person that puts Santa Claus away. How do I find a way to be open-minded and actually hear this case? He even says the thing about like, I'm going to observe this case with an open mind. I don't think he would have ever done that before. So it's like, whoa, what can this goodwill, what can this Christmas spirit, even if it's just like an act at first, because I think at first it is, but then by the end, Mr. Macy actually thinks about it and he goes, no, I do think he's Santa Claus. And by the end, I don't know that we get this closure from the judge, but I bet it's the same kind of thing. So I hadn't thought about that, how it's not just, it's like the judicial system goes through that as does the like financial sector. Whoa. Goodwill affects all of it. 100%. And I'll give you a trifecta. 
The yes. third story of Love Conquers All is the romantic relationship. It's that battle of cynicism and, um, you know, the feeling of lack, the feeling of like needing to be greedy and needing to hold everything in for yourself and be selfish because you're afraid versus the feeling of being loving and being open and, you know, having hope. And so that it's the exact same battle just in interpersonal relationships of, you know, is there lack in the world or is, is the world a place where we can be giving and have the Christmas spirit in terms of our relationships. And that's what, that's what she learns in that relationship. And so anyway, so I think, I think it's, it's amazing how many different ways in which this story using Christmas that I feel like we now, when we think of Christmas stories, we think, yeah, Christmas, like, you know, like it's, it's going to be stupid and bubblegummy. No, it's very serious. It talks about real things. It talks about, you know, really complicated stuff that is basically the good and evil of our modern day world. Um, and yet they use Christmas as this metaphor for that. And they manage to tell that story over and over again and really get to the lesson that's underneath it all, which is love conquers all. That's basically what all those stories are trying to say. Yes. Well, and I think something that uh, in the past has has rubbed me the wrong way in terms of like language has been the line that they keep saying is like, you have to have faith over common sense, right? And so I think in today's modern world, we're like, oh, faith, that means religion. But here, I don't think they're talking about religion. I think they're talking about faith in the good of humanity, faith in the good of people, faith in the good of like the universe, the world around you. Um, having that, over like, well, logically that person could cheat me, but having the faith of like, no, maybe they won't. Maybe I can trust my fellow man. So I think it's, I, I personally appreciate that, that interpretation, especially because I, like I'm a Jewish kid. I, I grew up like celebrating Christmas, but it's, it's for us, for us Jewish kids. <laughs> it's hard when everything goes real Christy, when everything goes really Jesus-y. Totally. Totally. Because like, you know, a lot of stuff does do that. And, you know, if you believe that, that's awesome. Like, good on you. Go do it. But like, it's hard when it's everywhere. And sometimes we want to experience Christmas without all of that. So this is kind of one of those movies where like even the little Jewish kids can get in on it um, yeah. because it's about more than that. It's about love. It's about love over fear. It's about love. And it's inclusive. And I appreciate that about this movie. Yes. Yes. When it says faith, it's not talking about like, follow this one God or else. Yes. It's, it's faith, meaning open your heart, be yeah. more loving, be less about your ego, be less about your fear. And it's also saying like, in the end, when Susan at first doesn't get her present and she's like, well, I'm not going to believe in him because this didn't happen. And the mom is like, no, but she, you've got to keep believing in people. Like that's no way to live. You can't just because some one person screwed you over one time, that doesn't mean every person's going to screw you over give people a chance. It's kind of like how oh, I took that. Man. And then she does, by the way, she's like, okay, I believe, I believe. And then she gets her house. So what I'm saying is if we believe in our fellow man, we're going to get a house, right? We're going to get a house, Sarah. <laughs> you have to believe that. Or else what is there in this life? But yeah, I loved all that. And I loved, side note, I love that the bad guy all the bad guys in this kind of are people who are not very good at their jobs and the people who are good at their jobs succeed. <laughs> this yeah. happened in another movie. Oh, it was Halloween that I watched with Nick where I was like, the people that are bad at their jobs didn't do well in that film. But in this film, the people that are good at their jobs go far. So these are like the postal workers. They freaking save the day. Um, Santa Claus, Chris, he's living his values 
he saves the day of Christmas for everybody. Uh, Fred Gailey, the lawyer, sticks to his values, does a good job of being a lawyer. He wins. People that don't win, Sawyer, terrible at his job, bringing people down. He's he's like a liar. And also he's a bad psychiatrist. <laughs> so all like there's all these dualities of this. But I, I was noticing if you're bad at your job, the, the prosecutor, he's not that great at his job and he does not win that case. So yeah, I was noticing eh, if you're not good at your job, you don't fare very well in this. So be good at your job. And part of that means like be kind and think about more than just your job. Think about the greater good that you're serving. It's very communism versus capitalism. And I wonder, I wonder at what time the, you know, House of Un-American Activities, I'm talking about just like the Communist Party in Hollywood that like people were freaking out about a few years from now and just that just the like the movies like this and like other movies in Hollywood around this time that are very much like focus on other people don't focus so much on your own job and your own ego and the people at the top aren't necessarily the best people the people at the bottom the workers the postal people those are the heroes like these are all very like you know they're not very capitalistic viewpoints they're more in that sort of socialism sort of um side of the spectrum well this is right after world war ii as well which i think like world war ii was ultimately deemed like we beat the bad guys we worked together anyone from anywhere could rise up and if we work together we defeat you know the access of evil so it, it has that kind of like if we all work together we can do this for the greater good yeah um, it's like I that agree. totally that vibe yeah, um, good of the world. Save the come together. Day. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, okay. So I do want to tell you a couple of behind the scenes things that I learned today or fun facts, I should say, about like the production of the film. Do you want to hear some of them? Oh my God, I can't wait. So uh, the parade sequences that they film at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which by the way, um, in the movie, Mrs. Walker, she's the one that like does the whole Thanksgiving Day Parade and it's awesome. And I love that she's a lady boss in this. It's very cool. But yes, yeah, she does the whole parade and it's actually Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And what they did was they had filmed it the year before. So this film comes out in 1947. They shot those sequences. It is the real parade as the real parade is happening in 1946. And so Maureen O'Hara was like, you had one shot to get it right because you could not mess it up. That's the real parade behind you. You had to get it right. Um, so yeah, that, that was like the real parade that they were shooting. Oh my um, God. Yes. And apparently it was also extremely cold the day that they were shooting outside. So the guy that played Chris Kringle, Edmund Gwynn, was like absolutely freezing. And he was jealous of Natalie Wood getting to sit inside and like look over the window at the parade. Um, so like there's God. all this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then another interesting thing about this movie is that it was released in May instead of around Christmas time. And it was because they like wanted to entice moviegoers to go back to the movies again. But then when they marketed it, they didn't know how to market it because <laughs> they didn't want to put a bunch of Christmas stuff in there. So they did like an unusual marketing ca- campaign where other movie stars like chatted up the film and were like, you need to go see this film. It's wonderful. Um, but it was such a hit. They didn't realize what a hit it was going to be. It was such a hit that it stayed in theaters from May until December of that year. It did not leave theaters for like that whole time. It was in theaters what? because that's it was like such a, whole, a big hit. That's a whole year. Yes. Almost. yes. Um, and then, oh, this one's actually really funny. Uh, the Catholic Legion of Decency gave this movie a B because uh, Maureen O'Hara's character was divorced. 
And they did not care for that. They did not think uh, that was okay for the American public to see a divorced woman. That was probably so racy at the time. Don't you mm. think? Like it was probably such a racy choice to make yeah. her a divorced woman getting married again. Well, I think she had to be. Cause I was thinking about that too. Like, why didn't they make him a widow or why didn't they make her a widow and make her husband like die? And it's because she had to be cynical and bitter. He had to be awful. He had to, she had to leave him. She had to have gone through a divorce. Like it had to be that bad so that she's not going to trust anybody again. Yeah. I mean, that could, you could, as an actor, you could kind of like justify it if it was someone that had died and your heart was broken and you were scared, but it's mm-hmm. just so much better if it's yes. like you're saying, if, if, if it's divorced, but it's still a bold choice for 1947. I agree completely. It is a bold choice. And Ma- Maureen O'Hara was Catholic too. She was Irish Catholic. So I bet you, she like disagreed with it, but I like that. Like she didn't let that get in the way of her acting. Do you know what I mean? She was yeah. like, this is a good movie. This is a good role. Who cares if she's divorced? I'm going to play this. It's not me. It's my character. Um, so I, I kind of love all that. But yeah, you're right. It's way more interesting that she's divorced. And it's one of, when we get to the modern lens, I was really surprised in this viewing how much stuff does hold up. And I think that's one of the things, like the boldness of having a divorce protagonist that you are rooting for. You want her to succeed. And you understand, even if you don't always agree with how she's raising Susan, you understand it. Um, yeah. It's a lot though, to ask a child to not have like fairy tales and to not have imagination. Um, That's a lot. (laughs) My mother was the exact same way. So I think I really related to this movie. Like my mother refused to lie to us. Like, cause she thought that was kind of messed up. So like, if you ever were like, Hey mom, is Santa real? Like she'd be like, you know, it's an, it's a nice story. Like she wouldn't, She wouldn't say it wasn't real, but she was never going to just be like, yes, Santa's going to come down the tree. And she, she wasn't like into that. And yeah. I think she was kind of like, why would I sit here and lie to you? Like, just because you're a child doesn't mean we have to start this relationship with lies. Well, and to me, that's not the part that's like unusual, because I actually do get that. To me, the part that's unusual is that she won't let her daughter hear stories like Jack and the Beanstalk or like fairy tales. To me, that's the unusual part. Like how Susan doesn't play with other kids because she doesn't know how to imagine. Like to me, that's the part that's like, oh, but that's so central to being a kid. How does she not figure it out on her own? Do we need to be taught to imagine? Who taught us? I don't know. She's with this person who is like, like almost like religiously teaching her about being Mm. literal and not getting too lost in your emotional daydreams. You, oh my God, you said you, she's religiously teaching her. And then I was like, oh my God, because it's like those kids that are in cults, like an educated, the girl that's raised in like a religious cult, basically, she didn't know there was any other way. And are not allowed to play with yes. because they believe in like, you know, they they watch Harry Potter or something, you know, it's like similar stuff like that, where it's like when the parents are just like so freaked out that they just like raise yeah. their kids under this I feel like that's what the movie's yeah. trying to say is like okay. she's so wrapped up in this like fear and I guess you're right that would be normal if if you were raised in a very kind of militant I guess household um I love Natalie Wood in this I do very much believe that she had never had an imagination before because when she makes monkey sounds they do not sound like what a monkey sounds like at all and I'm like <laughs> oh you've never you've never tried this before to throw up yeah she's like <laughs> like what is that I'm a monkey <laughs> it sounds like she's gonna throw up you're right that's her sound that i can't do it you did it way better (laughs) yeah but the fact and like oh but i did love that moment of like 
the older man teaching the younger child how to be a child. How lovely is that? Because usually the trope is like, when you get old, you get curmudgeon and you get bitter and you get stuck. And this guy's the opposite. He is so joyful and he's going to try new things like chewing bubble gum, even if it gets all stuck up in his beard. And he's, he's like him teaching her how to play is like very, very lovely and very moving, I think. It's so wholesome. The concept is so wholesome because you would think it would be like a movie about like Santa Claus lost his heart and like kids have to like cheer him back up instead of the idea of Santa Claus finding one little girl who has been affected by her parents' trauma and like actually needs a little holiday cheer to like teach her how to be a child again. And I love that this movie doesn't focus on like, is Santa Claus real or not? They get rid of that pretty early on. They're like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Even in the court, they're like, it's immaterial. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's like, that's not what this is about. This movie is basically about like, can, well, you mentioned it's all about like love and all that faith and you know, faith over common sense, they say. But I think it's like, it doesn't matter that is Santa Claus real or not. If they're trying to prove the spirit of Santa can exist in someone without them necessarily flying in a sleigh and delivering presents. Do you know what I mean? Even if he believes that, like, that's cool too. But they're like, that's not what the important thing is. The important thing is what this man brought us is what Santa Claus would bring us. Therefore, he is Santa Claus. Because there's that scene in the court where they're like, yeah, if you had said you were trying to be Santa Claus, Mr. Prosecutor, then we'd think you were crazy. But this man right here, who looks like Santa Claus, who behaves like Santa Claus, he's Santa Claus. Why, why is that crazy to believe? Um, so I don't know. I like that it, that it goes that route. So um, what else do we need to talk about? Oh, there was something I didn't know this time. That was like a fun fact. Cause they had mentioned something about like some people, some very famous and well-known people have delusions of grandeur and they're doing just fine. I looked up the person they were talking about. Um, they were talking about, they threw like Russian prince shade at somebody. And that <laughs> was uh, Romanov's restaurant in Beverly Hills. It was owned by someone that claimed to be a Romanov, even though he was very much not a Romanov and very much disproved. Like there were articles upon articles about how he was not actually a Romanov, but he built his whole persona around being a Romanov and had a really successful restaurant that movie stars would go to in the 1940s and 50s called Romanov's. So that was a direct dig at that person. <laughs> That would have been like a fun cultural fact in the day that we would have understood if we were like in that day. Oh my God. And like only if you were involved in the Hollywood community and you yes. knew that's where you went for lunch. That's yeah. amazing. So I love that. I was like, what is this? And I looked it up and I went, oh, it's a whole thing. They were they were throwing shade at this person. I it's love like it. a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to their own community. That's yes. amazing. And maybe the restaurant was famous beyond. I don't know. But either way, it's like you would have had to have, but that was like a deep cut for that like I really appreciate yeah. that they put that in there and it's stuff. That's awesome. Um so yeah those are kind of all the behind the scenes things that I had. Um I mentioned earlier this film won three Academy Awards. Edmund Gwynn who played Chris Kringle won the Best Supporting Actor award. Um Valentine Davies won for best writing best original story because they used to have an Academy Award for best original story which they no longer have. Now we have adapted screenplay and original screenplay. But back then they were like, well, what do we do if it's an adapted screenplay? We give credit to the person who wrote the original story. So like the, the story writer get, gets the credit. And then um, George Seaton won best writing for screenplay. So basically it won two writing awards because um, of the cleverness of its writing. It's incredibly clever, um, incredibly charming and just an all around great film. I'm really glad we watched it. Obviously, we need to discuss just Thelma Ritter 
our, our character actors are very on point here and we get a Thelma Ritter uh, cameo. It's not a cameo. She has a small part, but she's the original person um, who Chris Kringle kind of says, don't shop here, go find this at this other store. And she's the the woman that goes up to Mr. Shellhammer and is like, Mr. Macy sending people to other stores. I'm all for any store that puts the parent ahead of the almighty buck on Christmas. That's actually from the new one. I don't know what the quote is in this one, um, but it's something like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, but that's Thelma Ritter and I love seeing her. Um, we also get like William Frawley, who people at home would know as Fred from I Love Lucy. He's in this for a little moment. Gene Lockhart is in this and an interesting tie in with him. He plays the judge. He's also in A Christmas Carol, the 1938 one. So he's in like two iconic Christmas movies. He plays Bob Cratchit in that. Um, he's also really good in The Seawolf. That movie is like devastating and his part is the most devastating of all the parts. He breaks your heart in that movie. Oh, um, Natalie Wood, I mentioned, is Susan Walker. Uh, people at home, you know her for being a movie star. She goes on to do Rebel Without a Cause, West Side Story, Splendor in the Grass. John Payne is Fred Gailey. He He's in like a lot of B movies. <laughs> he's fine. He's also in The Razor's Edge. Um, Maureen O'Hara, People at Home, you know her from The Quiet Man, How Green Was My Valley, and of course, The Parent Trap, obviously. Obviously. Edmund Gwen is in about a billion things, uh, but he, I like him in uh, The Trouble with Harry, the Hitchcock movie. He's really mm-hmm. funny in that, um, but he's also in Pride and Prejudice. The director of this is also the writer, George Seaton, the screenwriter, I should say. Um, and he also directed The Country Girl, that Grace Kelly film where she won the Academy Award and Airport. Oh, and I forgot to say Porter Hall is Sawyer and he's also in The Thin Man. And spoiler alert for that film, he plays the bad guy in that too. <laughs> so you're like, ah, oh, got it. You're just always, always going to be the asshole. Got it, got it, got it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the cast of people. I don't really know a lot about them. I don't know a lot about Maureen O'Hara and Unfortunately, the things I know about Natalie Wood are like the really sad things about how she passed away and certain things that happened in her life. Um, but I love her. She's wonderful in this. I'm glad she had a career after this. Do we want to get into our favorite moments? You go first. One thing I was realizing today is my favorite moments in both the new one and the old one are kind of the same. Like they kind of line up. And I went, whoa, because in the old one, the 1947 version, I love the part where the little Dutch girl comes forward and he speaks Dutch with the girl who was an orphan who was adopted. It's so sweet. But then in the new one, the girl, the little girl is deaf and he speaks sign language with her. So I always love that's a perfect mirror. And then I also love the part in this. um, I cry every time, every single time when, um, Natalie Wood is like, is Chris Kringle sad? And her mom's hugging her and she's like, we have to believe in him. You know, that whole speech. I don't remember what she says. Every time I see it, I sob. I'm just like, oh God, it's beautiful. And you've changed your heart and you're going to write him a letter and you believe in him. So in the new one, that kind of translates to, there's this part where they're, they ask everybody in New York, they're like, do you believe in Santa Claus? And they all have like signs where they're like, the Teamsters believe. And then there's this little girl that has a sign that says, Rebecca believes. And that was like always my favorite part of the old one or the new one. So I feel like um, my two favorite parts in general are the part when he like communicates, when Santa can communicate with anyone, 
part A. And then when people who need to be asked up to like step up and believe, believe. Those are my two favorite kind of Yeah, that's like the Peter Pan, if you believe, then clap and bring Tinkerbell back to life moment. It's exactly like that. Yes, only a musical theater person could have put that so succinctly. Correct. (laughs) Yes, 100%. Okay. So those are mine. Do you, what are your favorite moments? Oh, there's nothing better than those two moments. You, you got it. You got it. Oh, oh I love, I love the drunk woman who's like, of course you can go. Santa Claus. Hello. And then she keeps, he keeps putting the phone by her head and she's like, Oh, silly of me. And it's like four different times where she just is like, hello. And talking to the wrong side of the phone that's hilarious to me every time just because it's so ridiculous you just named my mom's favorite part she (laughs) says that every time and when I told her we were doing this movie she said oh my favorite part is the drunk woman the guy's wife on the couch oh and also another funny drunk moment is I was saying this the other day when he's like a man's gotta do something to keep warm like the drunk people in this movie are maybe the best parts of this movie. They're very silly. They're not like scary menacing drunks. They're very, very silly drunks. Oh my gosh, let me tell you, that's how I always thought drunk was supposed to be. And when I went to college, I started acting like that. Like the first three or four times I got drunk, I was like, oh my God, I'm so drunk. And I would like collapse and like do all kinds of like things that like I didn't really need to do, but I thought you were supposed to do because you're drunk. (laughs) <laughs> I love that old movies informed your version of what a drunk person's supposed to be. It's a very specific type of drunk that people don't actually do. It's from the 1940s. It's like very specific, like drunk type of accent. It's true. The fact that Santa was drinking is a problem. Can you imagine being like about to be in a parade that's like the biggest parade in the world and everyone's staring at you and you're absolutely plastered? I don't know. That's, I can't imagine. I don't know how cold I am. Like I've been cold before I'm from Michigan, but I don't know. I can't imagine being like everyone's staring at me. I need to get plastered and I'm Santa. It's a hard connection. That guy's obviously an alcoholic. He's not like getting drunk because he's actually cold. He's just using that as an excuse. And then that brings us to who is the hiring team at Macy's? They hire a person that's an alcoholic to play Santa, which again, if you're an alcoholic, the struggle is real and I'm with you. There's nothing wrong with that. But like someone who is an active, active drinker, let's say someone hired him and they also hired Sawyer who has no credentials. So whoever the hiring team is at Macy's, they are doing something wrong. That's their first problem, the hiring. But they do say, wait, there's a part in court when they're like, it's when he's saying like, that man is all these awful things and I'm not those awful things. And yet you say I'm crazy and you don't say he is. And so there's almost that idea of like, if they knew Chris Kringle thought he was Chris Kringle before they hired him, they wouldn't have hired him and they would have missed out. But then they hired these other two people that they think are right for the job just based on outward appearances, not really delving too deep into it. And that's where everything goes awry for them, really. Well, I think that's an interesting moment that we haven't talked about. The moment that Chris Kringle loses his faith. And it takes this, this man who is unrelentingly full of optimism to bring his faith back and to say, you're wrong. You misunderstood the situation. Like they do believe in you. They just got, they just didn't get the right information. Um, But I think, you know, that moment where he's for the first time, he sort of, has come from the North Pole and is like now among the people and he like sees the unfairness and the injustice of the world for the first time. And, you know, he's, 
Chris Kringle kind of lives in this world where he's kind of discovering everything for the first time. And, you know, he, he's so full of childlike wonder that like he, he really has a lot of uh, an interesting journey as well. And I think he does have that beautiful moment in the climax of the, of the piece where, you know, he's in this mental hospital and he's, he's diminishing because he has been harmed by the unfairness, the injustice in the world. And the fact that someone who is not healthy on the inside is free to roam the world. And someone who is a healthy person on the inside, like him is being put in a crazy facility. And he's like, you know, this is not just, this is not, you know, this is not the world that I believe in. And, you know, I I'm, I'm about to give up. And I think it's, it's really cool that they have that moment in there, the concept of, you know, this, this this kind of like light getting dimmer and dimmer and then another light coming along and kind of you know helping it to come back again and it's you know he he did he santa claus couldn't have done that by himself he needed the faith of the people he needed you know mr gailey's unrelenting faith to keep him going and you know you i think community is a big aspect in a lot of these movies about love, like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, with these Christmas movies that are, you know, that really have something real to say. I think community is always a big part of that lesson and about how nobody can kind of do it on their own. And, you know, um, but like with a community and with, you know, that that true relationship and friendship backing you up, like you can get through the moments when life is unfair and unjust. You know, and and it can still be beautiful. Even the most pure-hearted person needs a little light and a little lift, and your community can help you. It's just well written. You just feel good inside. You know, you watch this movie, and it just it just makes you feel good. You're not thinking to yourself like, "Oh, this is so intricate." With like, you know, the way that they're beating me over the head with this message. It's just like the movie ends, and you're like, "Yeah." You gotta believe like, and you don't feel like it's too cheesy either. Like you were saying, like, it's, it's just sort of subtle enough that you're like, that was kind of, that was kind of clever without being too clever and kind of hopeful without being too hopeful. It's cause it deals with real people and it appeals to the best of us. So when you're done with this movie, you walk into the world being like, I don't want to be like Sawyer. I don't want to have that low vibrational bullshit. <laughs> I want right. to be like Fred Gailey. I want to be like all these other people. I want to be like Chris Kringle. I want to see the best in people. I want to spread joy. I want to work with my community, build people up. I think it makes it, since it shows kind of like real people and how they face like Mr. Macy, I'm not going to say there's no Santa Claus on the stand, but now that I think about it, ever since Chris has come to the store, everything has been better in like a real way. I don't know. So it's like, you can be real people who are serious, realistic people who also have a spark of that, that joy who have a spark of that whimsy like you do, it doesn't have to be totally one way or the other you can actually be a real person in the world who is uplifted and make change and who is like allowed to like have imagination i was i was just thinking about the fact that you said that this movie was came out in in may and i think that that is such a cool tidbit to know because I feel like we live in a world now where the business model is to capitalize on Christmas. And so there's no world in which this movie wouldn't come out for Christmas on Christmas, like just around, you know, just after Thanksgiving. So that people are at home for the holidays are going to go out and see this movie. And like, it's so manipulative the way that things are written now and things are created. Things are only created to make money off of. But I think the fact that somebody was like, I want this story to come out as a metaphor 
that can be told no matter what time of year it is. It isn't about like, you know, making money off of people because they're in the Christmas spirit. It's about being like, how can we use the Christmas spirit to say something actually kind of cool? I'm going to be honest though. I don't think the studio heads were that altruistic. Like I love this take on it, but I think it was just that like, shit, people are not going to the movies again. The movies aren't like, they're not as popular as they'd been the year before. Do we have a hit on our hands? Do we have anything that might be decent enough to get people out to the theaters? Um, Cause I don't think they knew it was going to be a mega hit the way that it was, but I think they knew they had a good movie. So I think they're like, crap, let's just release this movie that we know is good right now. Cause people might actually see it. Cause it's good. Don't you think that would make them like wait until Christmas time and be like, yeah, at Christmas, we're going to slam them with this one. Yeah. Well, now they would. I appreciate the fact that they were just like, this story in itself is good enough separate from like just a Christmas holiday movie. Like this is something that people can use in their lives when it's not Christmas time. It does remind me that Hocus Pocus was in fact released in July, which is a bananas decision for that Halloween film. But I think people did used to do that. I think people used to put out movies that were not according to their seasonal, like that's such a more in the last 10, 15 years kind of thing that's been happening. It's so weird. Cause it's like, no, we can still remember Halloween. It happens every year. I think the new one came out in the winter. I remember wearing a jacket to the theater. Yes. So we did see it in the winter. Wait, before we get to the modern lens, you reminded me that I wrote down one of the quotes that I think is like the most important quote in the film. And it's the one about the intangibles. Um, So Mr. Cayley, he's falling in love with Maureen O'Hara's character. Also, side note, this is part of the modern lens. It's very creepy. His relationship with Susie before he's friends with the mom creeps me out a little bit. Like, I know he had a crush on the mom, so he wanted to get close to the daughter. But like, she's eight. And it's weird that you've never met her mom and you're taking her to the zoo. I think that's weird. I'm just going to say it. I get that it's supposed to be like romantic, uh, but to me, it is a little unusual. That is such a modern lens because I think that this movie was created in a time where like people were able to have like a single mother getting help from a single man who lives in the building, who's going to like take her kid to the zoo while she's working is probably not seen as a pedophilia. Like, I feel like we look at things now from a very sexualized perspective that like, you know, things are dangerous because they could become sexualized. Um, But I think this, when this movie came out, there was nothing Like, yeah, that might be unusual because it's unusual for a woman to be a single mother. Whoa. I hadn't thought about that. Just the fact that there's like a perfectly kind neighbor who is going out of his way to be kind. um, Mm -hmm. I I don't think that they would have taken that as a sexualized, like nervous thing. The way that we would nowadays. Yes. The way that we would be like, why is that man with that child? But I think back in the 40s, like they just didn't have that like red flag. Knee-jerk yeah. action. Yeah. And it's very cute. There's another really good moment that I love when um Natalie Wood is asking her mom if Mr. Gailey can have Thanksgiving dinner with them. And then at the end, she goes, Did I ask right? And you know that he like coached her to to be adorable and to say all these things to get him invited to the dinner so that basically he could marry her mom and be her de facto stepdad. Um, that's very sweet. But again, with our modern context could be creepy. He's coaching a child to get him invited to dinner again, but that's, it's the past and it's romantic. Doesn't that make it a little less creepy? Because like, if he was literally just being like, my new best friend is this little eight-year-old girl, that would be weird. But like the fact that he's like, I'm going to like be kind to you because I kind of 
I'm kind of curious about that older woman. Like that makes it a little bit more um, appropriate in my mind that like, you know, he's a good person and he's, he's doing a good deed, but like, it's not just because he like wants to hang out with an eight-year-old. He, it's like, he put in the work, he knows what he wants. Like when Chris asks him, like, do you want to live in the city? Like, what do you want to do? He's like, no, I want a house. And he describes the house that like Natalie Wood's character wants. So it's like, he knows what he wants. Also. I don't know. I do think him and Susan building a relationship is genuine and not creepy, but by today's standards, it would be creepy. But by then standards, it's very, very sweet. Because he's like picking her as his kid. He's like, I want you to be my kid, you know? Or at least I want to get to know your family. I want to get to know your family. Like, I want to marry your mom because your mom's hot. But also, like, I wouldn't be sad (laughs) if you were also my kid. Dylan McDermott plays that role in the new one. He is so sexy. And you get it. You're like, yep, I pick him. Yep, correct. I feel like John Payne isn't as sexy as uh, Dylan McDermott. Um, I'm just Mm going to put that out there. Maybe another modern lens. Maybe another thing. Sort of like by 1940s standards, who was the hot man? Sexier. Wait, but I do want to read the intangibles quote before we move on from it, just because I think it's an important quote. So Fred Gailey has this quote that he says to the mom after, you know, their date in court, when things are kind of breaking down, he's left his law firm because he completely believes in this case and he believes Chris and he believes in Chris and wants to, you know, do work like this. And um, Maureen O'Hare's character is just like, you quit your job and you expect me to be happy about it. (laughs) So he's got this whole quote for her, which is faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy, love, and all the other intangibles. And then she says, those lovely intangibles are not worth very much. You don't get ahead that way. And he says, that depends on what you call getting ahead. Oh, let's talk about how how spiritual what you just said is. My God, like that is some spiritual stuff. Like, the fear of not getting ahead in this life and then realizing what is getting ahead. I mean, that is deep. It's a wonderful life. That's what that is. It is. When you were talking about like the deeper message of it, I was like, that's a lot like it's a wonderful life, which would have been the year before this. Like these two movies probably affected by people who, well, definitely affected by people who went to war and saw things and came back. And yeah, the deeper message is totally there. What What is actually valuable in life? Is it money? Is it position or is it all these other things and he says that as he's leaving he's like one day you're gonna wake up and realize life was about the intangibles and you missed it you know Mm. it's crazy that it takes a war to like get people to realize these things you know it is and it makes me sick because it's like all happening again and I'm like I don't know how to stop this I I see I see what we're doing here and it's not okay and I don't know how to stop it (laughs) so I'm like hey if you all watch this movie do you think maybe (laughs) Maybe would that help with how you think about things, people who have lost your minds? It's crazy because, you know, I feel like we come from the generation of like growing up on Sesame Street and growing up with like these lessons kind of drummed into our heads that like it's really not about conquering. It's about, you know, it's about love and like the fact that the fact that the world is still run by people that are run by their egos. It's devastating that we haven't gotten farther in our development yet. Although I feel like to look for the bright side, I feel like Oprah would argue, <laughs> this is just all of the wounds coming to light. And so now we have to heal them. And I'm like, do all the wounds have to be open at once though? Can, is there another way we can heal them? Can the people with the wounds go away? And those of us that grew up with Sesame Street and understand the messages they gave us run the world instead. Yep. 
and the people with the wounds can they like heal themselves like do we have to do that work too because it's exhausting <laughs> exhausting uh anyway so there's all that uh i feel like we should also probably talk about the the moment where chris kringle hits sawyer uh because that, that's yeah. like another kind of powerful moment um so there's a character we haven't talked about yet his name is alfred he's played by it's not online i had to like search for this it's not on imdb this man's name is alvin greenman and he plays alfred and he's a sweet 17 year old boy they comment on his weight a bit and i'm like hey back off he's just the correct weight leave him alone um but anyway he's the janitor at macy's he's incredibly sweet and on his free time he works with little kids at like the local youth center and plays Santa for them. And he's been going to see Sawyer for like, quote unquote, psychoanalysis. And Sawyer has been giving him a lot of like the psycho babble from the 1940s and 50s, which is hilarious psycho babble about, you know, you hate your father and want to marry your mother kind of stuff. Right. And um, telling him that he has a guilt complex because he wants to bring joy to people. Therefore, he must have done something bad when he was young and feel guilty about it. So uh, he tells this to Chris and Chris is like, that's ridiculous. Like, no, please don't see this man anymore. He's not telling you the truth. But I I like that when he goes to confront Sawyer, he says, I have great respect for psychiatry. Like this movie is not here to to take away from psychiatry. We see it. So like this movie isn't being like psychiatrists are bad. Therapy is bad. It's him being like, no, this man is a quack who's not doing this for the right reasons. I'm calling him out on it. Um, so Chris Kringle goes to Sawyer. He confronts him. Uh, he tells him exactly what he thinks of him. And it's pretty brutal, but pretty honest. And Sawyer has a terrible reaction. And um, basically, Chris Kringle is like, I'm going to go tell Mr. Macy what you're doing. And uh, he bops him on the head with a cane. And uh, Sawyer sees that Mrs. Walker and Mr. Shellhammer are coming into the office. And he pretends that he was injured very badly, even though he wasn't, in order to get Chris fired. Um, or get Chris sent away because he's pretended he's had this like latent maniacal tendency, which means that like, if you act like he's not Santa Claus, he'll become violent. Um, And none of that's true. So it is weird that Chris hits him in the head with a cane. I've always thought this. I'm like, did you got to? Did you have to? Um, And I always want him to get to Mr. Macy sooner. Uh, It always kills me that he he can't tell him who Sawyer is sooner. Um, But like, that's that whole moment. Let's let's break it down. What do you think about all that? I think it's another modern lens moment where um, violence wasn't seen in in the way that we see it now. Like totally there was a much higher tolerance for physical um, altercations. They didn't mean the same thing. He kind of pops them really quickly. It's not like he like, but, you know, I mean, I, I think about movies that I grew up on that are older around or before this time, like Laurel and Hardy type of things where it's like almost clowning where people get hit and it's funny and it, you know, it barely even bothers them. And um, I just feel like looking at it now, it's like, whoa, you just hit somebody in an office. You, you obviously fired, you know, like, why would you not have more control over your over physical violence in an office. But I I definitely think that that is because we're, you know, 80 years later and we've changed our minds on how much is too much with physical violence. And back then it was like, if you're a bad, if you're a bad boy, you get, you know, punished in some way. And so it's kind of like, Sawyer, you behaved like a bad kid. I'm treating you like you're a bad kid. And that's what you would have done. Absolutely. How I mean, it was probably absolutely normal. Most parents at that time were washing their kids' mouths out with soap, were hitting them, you know, in schools, they were getting hit with rulers. It was like 
totally normal punishment to be physically harmed, spanked, you know, all that stuff that I'm sure in the forties was like most people. To be clear, people at home, we are not condoning this. We are just saying that for the 1940s, this was probably normalized. There is something satisfying about that scene, even without the hit of like someone telling off a person who is in a position of power and doing harm. There is something so satisfying about that. Like Chris is speaking for maybe everybody that's ever been in a situation like that. Um, And there's no HR back then. (laughs) So this is like, I guess, psychoanalysis would have been like de facto HR. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But it's just like, yeah, this idea of seeing somebody tell off somebody who's abusing their power is incredibly satisfying. You hate that it doesn't pay off right away for him. You hate that he has to, that there's subterfuge and there's, you know, Sawyer's such a snake. Santa in this movie is very childlike. He's got that childlike wonder and he also reacts to the injustice of the world in a very childlike way where he gets freaked out and just sort of like has a tantrum. And then, you know, the world shows him that that doesn't really fly. And he, you know, he gets bested because he had this sort of childlike reaction to the world. He could have gone directly to Mr. Macy. He could have avoided right. the whole confrontation in the first place. But he he re- responded to it like a child. What do you think of Susie's house or like Susie wanting a house? I think that has a lot to do with um, what, what the culture was saying is important at that time. And it was a family with two parents and a child yeah. <laughs> in a house, not an apartment in New York City. Like he even- <laughs> an amazing apartment, by the way. I'm like, are you sure you want to leave that? The house is cute, but are you sure? You have a view of the Macy's Day Parade? Yeah, but I mean, that's just that just shows like what the values were at the time and like what was considered like, what would a little girl with a single mom want? She would want a family, uh, like, you know, a not broken family. <laughs> I don't feel like that's necessarily what we would say she would want nowadays. I mean, in the 1994 one, she not only wants a house, she wants a house, a dad, and a brother. And guess what, people at home? Spoiler alert, she gets all three. Hey! Oh my gosh, that's even more 1950s than the 1950s version. (laughs) True. I don't know. I love that in the end, there is the twist of the cane because the, you know, they they go to the house in the country. Chris gave them special instructions. They end up at this house. Susie's like, it's just the way I pictured it. And, um, you know, they're like, well, we got to buy it for her because, you know, we can't let her down. And then they see Chris's cane in the corner and they're like, oh, did he really arrange this? He is Santa Claus is kind of the gist. I think it's funny that he didn't actually believe the entire time. Because Fred has this line where he's like, I did this wonderful thing. I proved that Chris is Santa Claus. And and then he sees the cane in the corner and he goes, oh, maybe I didn't do such a wonderful thing. And you're like, oh, shoot. Wait, is that the other shoe dropping? Are you a faker, Fred, whose faith was unshakable? No, but that's that's the point is that the, the movie was about what Santa Claus stood for. Yes. The movie was yes. about whether or not he really was Santa Claus. It's a little wink the end of the movie. and you know, you realize that maybe it's even more magic than anybody thought. I do love, though, that they do include that just because you don't get the thing you ask for, that doesn't mean Santa can't exist. Because I I bet there's a lot of kids after this movie that want a house or a lot of kids, you know, that ask for things that they're not going to get. Um, and so I kind of like that it, it figures that into its script about like, that's not what this is about. There's so many things in this movie that they 
are trying to describe what is the essence of like what we love about Christmas. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, it's not about the presents. It's not about getting what you want all the time. It's about keeping your heart from becoming cynical and fearful, despite the fact that you're not going to get everything you want all the time. Oh, people at home, the reason it's called Miracle on 34th Street is because that's where Macy's is located, 34th Street and 7th Avenue. So that's why it is titled that. I think at one point or in the UK, they called it the big heart because they were like, no one's going to understand the 34th Street title. The big heart? That's terrible. I agree. They later changed it back to Miracle on 34th Street for the UK people. Um, It had other names too. I don't remember what they were, but this is the one that kind of stuck. And obviously people, the miracle that occurs on 34th Street is that all of the New Yorkers look out for each other and get a sense of Christmas in their hearts. I guess that's (laughs) the miracle. They all believe in Santa Claus. You think that's what the miracle is? I don't know. What do you think the miracle is? That Susie believes or that people believe? Yeah. Okay. That's the miracle. (laughs) I think it could be called, I think it could be called miracle at Macy's, but they couldn't get the rights. Ooh, that would have been a good title, but I like 34th street. You know what? I take it back. This is fun. No, 34th street is so much better, but I'm just saying like, I think that was the idea is that like Mm. this all happened like at this toy store. Yeah. I also want to say in the beginning, the beginning of this film, uh, we're following Chris Kringle through the streets of New York on Thanksgiving day, you know, for the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade, he stops by a store window where someone's setting up reindeer. And he says to the the person at the store window, oh, you're doing it wrong. That's not how the reindeer are. And he tells them the correct order. But recently I have found out that reindeer that have antlers are actually female reindeer. So all of Santa's reindeer in real life are women. And how awesome is that everybody at home? And why do they all have men names anyway? Well, Rudolph is a little bit of a dude name, but you know what? I'm right now, from now on, it's gender neutral. Be kind of cool to name a baby, like one of the reindeer names, like Dasher. I was worried you were going to be like, I don't know, Comet. That sounds like a terrible human name. You can't name a human Comet. Dasher's good. Dasher's good. Um, You can't name a kid Cupid. No. Uh, That would be hard for them, I think. That would be really hard. Okay, so Dasher's kind of the only one. Dasher's kind of the only one. Maybe Blitzen, maybe. No, you couldn't do it. Could you? Dancer? No. (laughs) Dancer? Vixen? Donner? Donner. You can name a kid Donner. There's some pretty weird names. I wonder where those names came from. I mean, we could look it up, but I'm not in the mood. Um, Oh, mental health. This is one more thing I want to talk about, too. Mm -hmm. I like that the movie is hinged on the idea of mental health and what's okay mental health-wise. So like the movie basically takes the stance of like, if you're doing good in the world and you're not hurting anybody, it's fine to have delusions and that's okay. Um, Like, what do you make of this being like kind of the underlying basis that happens throughout the film? I love the concept of questioning what makes something real versus not what makes someone sane versus not just because you call yourself something, you know, how do you prove that anyone is anything and I like I like that blurry area and I think it's kind of a kind of a cool concept because um I I think that we still there's still a lot to that we all don't know about how much believing something creates reality. I think there's almost quantum physics involved in that. Like I think that I think that the mystery of how the world works is something that we all walk around every day trying to figure out, you know, how much control do I have over my fate, over my existence, over my life? You know, do I, do I have the power to determine, to, to self-determine 
Um, do I have the power to dream? Do I have the power to imagine that life might be um, magical um, and, and, you know, bigger or more special than it is right now in reality. And anyway, I think that's, I think that's the stuff that, that people deal with on a daily basis is this trying to figure out how much their own thoughts and their own beliefs affect their reality. I think for me, it, it deals more in nuance. And like, I think today we want everything to be incredibly black and white one side or the other. And so rarely it is just that way. There's so much in the middle and so much gray area. Mm. And so I think to me, some of this too is like, this is in the gray area of like, if this movie happened today, this man would not be allowed to work with children. Right. <laughs> you know, like, but is he actually a harm to them? I don't know. Like, I don't think that he is, and especially in this film, but I don't know. So it's like, it operates kind of in this gray area that we're not super comfortable with in today's world. But I think, I feel like yours is very lyrical and poetic. I actually love what you just said. It was beautiful. No, no, no. I think that's so funny. Like looking at this movie, literally, like if you took it literally and you were like, this is a bad thing that like this man actually gets exonerated because he's walking around the world thinking that he's Santa. Like we shouldn't be celebrating that. Yeah. <laughs> like Sawyer, right. This man is sick. I feel like that's how the world would view it today. But that's why it's kind of nice to put on this cap of like, this is the one and only nice cap of the past that we can put on where it's like, oh, it is sweet to look at it through this other lens and not through, through what it would be today. That is kind of the beauty of it though, that like, who's, who's to say, you know, he, he has affected people the way that Santa Claus would. So who are we to say that he is crazy? I think by the end of the film, we were both like, I believe in you, Chris Kringle. It's silly, but I believe. Or at least I want that kind of goodness to exist and to be able to like affect change. All right. So we're going to move on to the modern lens portion of this show. Uh, what holds up? What doesn't hold up? Some things that I was like, oh, wait, actually, a lot of stuff kind of does hold up. Um, so I love that the divorced woman boss lady is the one that we're rooting for she's like the only woman in a high paying job with a bunch of men around her and they're like listening to her and she's like crushing it i love that because this is 1947 you know love that um i loved that the post office and like the average worker save the day so it's not some like high up person doing things it's like anybody could save the day you average joe you small child you can save the day i love that Weirdly enough, this is really small, but it struck me this time how Mr. Shellhammer shares credit with Doris. So when he's credited with this like brilliant idea to, so basically we didn't even explain this. I'm sorry, people at home. Um, what ended up happening with the stores is that Santa's like sending people to other stores that have the item for cheaper. And so Macy's takes that on as their policy. So they hire a bunch of people like we have store guides for every store in our vicinity. We might not have what you're looking for. Somewhere else might have it for less money. We'll send you there. So that idea belongs to Chris Kringle. It gets um, kind of credited to Shellhammer, but Shellhammer shares the credit with Doris Walker. And I was like, that's cool that she has like a male coworker who is sharing credit for a really good idea with her. I thought that was dope. And I had not thought of that before. Totally. And then also this is like, there are not really people of color in this film. Uh, we talk about this, I feel like every week where I'm like, but we have the maid and on the one plus side, they did not put like a stereotypical accent voice on her that they might've put in other films at this time, having her put on sort of like that 
stereotypical black maid character. She speaks the same way that Mrs. Walker speaks. You know, they aren't trying to be like, well, I mean, like it's racist, but it's not as racist as it could be. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think it's racist. I think that that's really what black people would have been doing at that time. I think that um, a single mother would need someone to babysit her child. And I think it's probably makes sense that somebody who's that high up at Macy's would have a maid in her house, in her apartment in New York City on 34th. And and I think that it's very likely that woman would have been black. I, I don't think it's racist. I think it's just the situation that existed in the day was black people were the main. That was the kind of jobs that were available. People. Yeah. <laughs> well, so like that is, I mean, that's racist, but the film is not necessarily racist for portraying the racist reality is what we're right. saying. Right. But yeah, it is always a relief when like, because we've talked about this on the show before, like you knew the liberal directors versus the not liberal ones based on how black people were portrayed in their films, or you could tell who was like pro civil rights and who was not. Uh, so like, that's usually something I notice now because when someone said that I couldn't unnotice it. And so, yeah, I'm at least grateful that like, like she's entrusted, she sounds intelligent, like they're not trying to debase or like tear her down, make her less than. Totally. Um, she has like one line people at home. So I said, that's not, she's not like a big character, but she has a name. Her name is Cleo. Just, okay. So now we're going to get to maybe like the more negative modern lenses of like, we mentioned this already in today's world, the Mr. Gailey and Susan relationship is a little uncomfortable in today's world, but not in the forties world. We did mention that um, forties and fifties psychiatry is absolutely bananas. Um, but also so you're getting hired as bananas and them not getting a second opinion for your prize asset. How could you not get a second opinion? I don't know. That's always blown my mind. They really don't ask anyone else but Sawyer. Really? Do you have any? No, no, I don't. I don't. I think it holds up so well. I agree. I was surprised at how well it held up because sometimes you watch things and you're like, it's physically painful. And so this was like, no, actually, this is this is pretty, pretty good comparatively for a 1947 film. Um, all right. So I guess we are going to move into the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, check out these other films. Um, I actually thought um, Meet John Doe would be a good double feature with this because it's another movie. It's like Christmas. Barbara Stanwyck. Hey, love her. Um, and like, you know, Gary Cooper. But it's like a man representing the American people. He's pretending to be something he isn't, but he becomes that thing over the course of the film. So someone kind of coming into the role that they're playing. And it's also about like, it has similar themes. So check out Meet John Doe. Um, I would also say a Charlie Brown Christmas because I felt like when they talked about commercialism, that was all I could think about was Charlie Brown and his little tree talking about commercialism. Um, a Christmas story, obviously 1940s Christmas. Uh, I wrote Christmas in Connecticut cause it's like my favorite one. So I love that movie and you should just watch it. <laughs> I love it. Um, I wrote remember the night too, also, cause it's just a fun Christmas movie. It actually doesn't have a lot to do with this other than it takes place partially in um like with the legal system in court um it's a wonderful life because you had mentioned it there's like these deeper meanings underneath both and then it happened on fifth avenue um is a christmas movie that doesn't get shown a lot but it's kind of similar in that it's a man like squatting in a mansion who even though he is not wealthy he is worldwide and he shares his kind of his knowledge with uh people that he comes into contact with and makes their lives better because of it so yeah, those were those were my double features. Ash, did you have any double features? Those are all phenomenal. The only thing I would add is the parent trap with Maureen O'Hara. 
So good. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. There's so much we could unpack when it comes to the parent trap and how weird that concept is. There are so many bizarre things about the parent trap that we could definitely spend time being like, what about that one? You just gave one of your twins away and you didn't tell them that they had a A twin twin sibling. That's anyway. um, But Maureen O'Hara is so good in that movie. That movie is so cute. I want to watch it again, actually. I haven't seen it in so long. I rewatched it. So I used to watch it with my mom when I was a kid and we rewatched it a few Christmases ago, I think. And it it was, you know, there were certain things that were painful, but it was still lovely. Like I was like, oh, I still enjoyed this. This was still really fun. Chemistry between, you know, in both the parent traps, there's chemistry between the, the two adult like parents that you're really like hoping they get back together. Also as a side note, Maureen O'Hara, I didn't really mention this about her, but she was kind of like Ireland's first superstar. Um, So she was an Irish American actor. She was like naturalized literally from Ireland and um, moved to the U S and yeah, she, I think she's like, so she's so beautiful in this film, but she's so like steady. She still has like a little bit of her Irish accent every now and then that you can hear when she speaks. But yeah, I, I just, I don't know. There's something about her where even though you know that you don't agree with her necessarily, you still like her in this film. Like it's a weird like ability that she has because we could very much dislike Doris Walker. We could be like, oh my God, you're so mean. You're not letting your kid do these things, but we still like her. Um, And we understand why she feels this way. Even if we don't know her whole backstory, we still, we like get her. Um, And she's also just like so beautiful. Like her hair, her clothes, everything is perfect in this film. You know what's funny? I'm realizing that this is such a this is such a trope that happens so much in entertainment. Okay, I guess I've only realized it because as a as a female actor, I've especially in romantic comedies or romantic scenarios, you're often having to be likable, even if you're a cold bitch in the beginning, because the audience soften and fall in love by the man. And so you kind of like start a lot of things off by being, um, by being like cold and like, uh, like almost like not sexualized. You know what I mean? Like, you know, a buttoned up and tight and I could list so many movies for you right now. And musicals. Oh, all of Hallmark is that what you just described is the big city lady coming home to her small town, losing her iciness of the big city. Even something like friends, Jennifer Aniston, like her character is, she has to be so angry all the time and you have to just like inherently love Jennifer Aniston because so much of what Jennifer Aniston has to do and say is unlikable um, because you because you want to watch that person change and like through her love for Ross, like finally like soften. But like at first she's got to be spoiled. She's got to be like, I don't know, like yell at Ross and not like him and not like, you know, where like any normal person would be like, you're a good guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I just, I, I've noticed that, that like I've so now, so often I'm like watching entertainment where like in the beginning, the woman has to be likable inherently because she's written in a way that makes her like get deflowered over the course of the movie. I'm thinking about two pieces of like entertainment that I've dealt with recently. One was a book called, um, I have some questions for you. And one was a movie called anatomy of a fall. And I loved both of them. And in both of them, the criticism against the lead female character was that she wasn't likable. 
And when I was reading them and when I was watching them, I wasn't thinking about her being likable. I was thinking about her being real. And so now I'm wondering, because I did like Marino Harris so much. I'm like, what if they didn't make her likable? What would happen? Would we still like her even if they didn't make her likable? Does that make sense? Well, I think one of the things that they make sure to do is they make sure that she is physically appealing to people. So even if she is being super annoying or super cold or super rude, she's pretty to look at. And so we automatically immediately are trained to find her enjoyable and like her. Yeah. And she does bend to what the man thinks at the end. And even though he is right in this case, she is um, not like sticking to her own guns. She is bending to what he thinks, even if it is right. You know what it is? It's a woman who doesn't want to have sex softening and like changing her mind and ending up wanting sex with you. A woman who doesn't want to have sex with any guy, but with the right man, she is willing to give up her virginity. And that is a story that we are constantly being sold this idea of this woman is off limits to everybody except the man that she will marry and be with. And um, you're going to try to take her home and she's going to say no, 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 until she finally says yes and opens up her flower to you. And it's like, I think it's this fairy tale story that like, even if we're not even aware, we're being told, we're being told it, that, that the woman is going to be like cold until the man says or does the right thing and then she says yes and she softens and how sexy is that whoa and it is a trope and i do wonder if it bleeds into life whoa thanks ash we think it's hot don't we like the idea of a woman saying no 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 but to this one man she says yes and her heart opens and then he can have sex with her isn't our culture weird? Oh, our culture is so weird. And I just fell right into it without even realizing it. I hate that. I fall into our own traps, but I like them sometimes. Like this movie was sweet, but you're right. That's a trope. <laughs> I love that our talk about the family holiday classic Miracle on 34th Street led to this conversation about sex in cinema, um, as it should have. If I've learned anything from Santa, <laughs> I don't know where, like, where is that going? <laughs> I wish I could have found a way to tie that in, but thank you fast. Oh, man. Um, I definitely feel like I missed stuff that I'll regret later. But you know what? I'm really glad that we watched this movie. I'm really glad that we talked about it. Um, And thank you so much for being on the show. Ash, how can people find you and support you after hearing this podcast? Oh, come check out my Instagram. I feel like I am um, trying to sort of put myself out there as a fuller human because I think that um, Instagram can, of course, as we all know, become this like very tiny sliver of like the not truth. But I really like to put all different kinds of stuff on there about what life is like for a person uh, like me in my 30s, you know, dealing with ups and downs of life. And I try to put both of those ups and downs and in-betweens up there. And I and I like to I like to connect with people that way. And what's your handle? Oh, it's at a underscore Blanchette, B-L-A-N-C-H-E-T. Come find me. Um, well, Ash, it was so lovely having you. Thank you for being on this show. Thank you for having me. It's always wonderful to be here with you. Right back at you. And also people at home, it's like also we get to catch up too. So it's like really nice for us um, outside of the show. Okay. So, <laughs> so 
everyone at home, happy holidays. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and we will see you all next time in January for Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Ashley Blanchett. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for Podcasters or Anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.